Well, this afternoon we will continue on exegesis, actually hermeneutics. We're in the part of the course that I think is the fun part, not that the other is not fun, but it's a little bit more, I guess, what would you say, academic. Whereas this part of the course, we get right into the text itself, so from here on out, Not only will we have examples in the text, but uh, you'll be working on your own as you have time for some of you and others as a requirement. You'll be working on assignments that will get you right into the text, basically doing the things that we'll be talking about during our time in class. So we're in the portion, we it's called exegesis, that applies the general principles of hermeneutics It also applies the special hermeneutics principles. Even though we haven't talked about them yet in detail, we'll get to that at the end of the course. So we're in the exegetical part, or commonly referred to as Bible study methods. I like exegesis, and the reason for that is because uh, that's the technical description of what we will be doing. First thing we want to consider are some preliminary issues or preliminary things in the process, the exegetical process. The first one is book study. We want to do a book study. What's involved in doing a book study? Preliminary exegesis. Well, you want to do the same process to the entire book as you will do to a more restricted individual passage. You want to apply the same hermeneutical principles, but you want to do the same observations or exegetical principles, observation, generalization, and uh, substantiation to a book, the whole book. So how do you do a book study? Let me give you some practical things you can do. To introduce it, this is a satellite view of the city of Albuquerque. It's just an illustration. You could use the same illustration by going up on the crest. Have you, have you, ever, have you gone up there yet? Where you can see the whole city. It, it's quite a sight. Well, you'll see something like this from Google Earth, obviously. But this is the city. You can see a little bit of the edges of the city over here. This stands out because of the layout of Google Earth, but even in an airplane at 30,000 feet, certain features stand out when you see the whole city. What you're looking at is the the entire city at a glance. I'm using the analogy here. This is what this is the same type of thing that you want to do with the book. You want to look at the whole book at at a glance, if you will. Certain features you, you see a major feature somewhat divides a portion of the city, and I've kind of prioritized the east side because that's the oldest part of the city, and a bigger shot kind of obscures some of the detail. But from an airplane, you will see immediately that there's a major river that divides the east side from the west side, and there's a large portion of the city on the west side. So that's a major feature. So if somebody were to ask you, what, what's Albuquerque like, or what is, you know, what, what are your impressions of it? If you flew over it, you could say, well, there's an east and there's an, a west side divided by a river in between. You also notice that 
The city kind of ends abruptly over here because there's a mountain range on the east side, the Sandia Mountains, and they stand out very prominently, and you see it immediately from that overview. You notice that the city is divided into quadrants by an interstate system. There's a north-south and there's an east-west. Now, from the airplane, you don't see immediately there's I-25 or I-40, but if you look at a map, that stands out as well. The point I'm making here, these are the major features that stand out, at least physically and geographically. You also notice that there's a, a major airport to the south of the city. And you notice that there's a kind of a cluster of larger buildings accumulated here. So there's a downtown area. But you also notice that Albuquerque has another cluster, a second cluster. We know that as uptown. And you can even distinguish that from the air. Maybe not so much from this photograph. And uh, there's other features. One thing you don't notice, you don't notice too many small residential streets. You see some major arterials. These here. There's one there. There's one there. Here's another major one here, Central Avenue. Another one here. But you don't see the individual residential streets. You don't see the houses. What I'm telling you here is when you do a book study, you want to do the same type of thing. Get the major features of the book. Don't get bogged down with the individual words, like you can't see the individual houses. Don't get bogged down by the individual sentences or even paragraphs. Try to look at the book from this broad perspective. Does that make sense? That's what you want to do in a book study. That's the analogy I'm painting here. So what do you do? In a book study... There are two stages. Stage one is the overview. And immediately, what you're trying to develop is the overall context of the book. So that you can, when you deal with the individual passages, you will have those individual passages in a larger context, the context at least of the book. So you're developing context primarily. The overall broad context of the book. Well, your basic skill is just simply reading. Read the book. Pretty simple. But read it with a purpose. Read it with this overview idea. Don't read it with a view to the detail yet. You'll get into that. That's later on. You're just looking for the major features of this book. If you know how to skim a book, you can skim the book. That would be acceptable. Just like you're flying over the city, you're not driving through every individual street. You're looking at the whole city all at once. That's what you want to try to do with the with the book. Now, you want to read it enough times that you feel comfortable with it, so that you kind of feel like, okay, I can I I see some of the major features of this book. So you may want to skim it or read it two or three times, especially if it's a short book. If it's a book like Philippians or James or Obadiah or or even uh, a book like uh, Psalm of Solomon, you can read it several times. Three, four, five, six. Looking for these major features of the book. What are the major features? Some things to look for are instead of major rivers or major streets that divide a city, what you're looking for Major divisions of a book, rather. Major divisions of a book. How does this book divide into divisions? 
and what divides them, what separates these divisions. Major themes, major ideas, major features like what is the genre of this book? Is it predominantly epistolary or entirely epistolary? Or does this book have historical sections and has other sections as well? Is it predominantly poetic? So some of these major things. Think in terms of an outline. Now this is a broad outline, not a detailed outline, where you have divisions. You're dealing with major divisions. How do the divisions fit together? What is the main theme? Look for direct in divisions. Look for direct statements by the author on a new section. Let me give you an example. Turn to the book of Ezekiel. I'm not necessarily saying that this is how the book is necessarily structured, but it's a clue that maybe it is. might suggest it at least. I haven't exegeted Ezekiel, by the way, but there's some things that stand out, and these are the types of things that you want to look for. Notice, let's read verse 1. You want to, one of you read verse 1 and then kind of alternate back and forth. I'll give you another passage. Mm-hmm. Chapter 1, verse 1. Ezekiel 1, 1. In the thirteenth year and the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the, the exiles by the Shabar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. Okay. Notice several features in that first verse. Definite time frame, location, and he sees a vision. And he's, and then next he's going to start explaining what he saw. Skip to chapter 8. You want to read verse 1. And it came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. And then verse 2, then I looked. And then he explains what he saw. You see the same thing? Definite time frame in his house, in this case, with the elders. And then verse 2, then I looked. Look at chapter 20. What I'm getting at here is these may be major divisions of the book or at least sections that may be parts of the larger divisions. You want to read that one? Verse 1. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Okay, and then verse 2, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, and now he's going to tell us what the word of the Lord was. Again, a time frame. Not so much the specific location, but who's with him, kind of the circumstances. And then now, the word of the Lord. Chapter 20, let's do one more. Chapter 24, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month, saying. Okay, and then in verse 2, it also even mentions Jerusalem. So you have the same, you know, you have a time frame, a location, and either a vision or the word of the Lord came to him. And if you keep reading through the book, it might stick out. Uh, you see it in 20, chapter 26, verse 1, chapter 29, verse 1, very similar. Chapter 31, verse 1, chapter 40, verse 1. The similar structure or the similar idea. So those are the type of direct statements that help you sometimes see where at least breaks, if not major divisions, in in a book, 
You might also look for connectives, things that connect things together. Turn to 1 Corinthians for this, where Paul is using a little connective phrase to, to divide probably different portions of the book of 1 Corinthians. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Let's see, who, you want to read that one? Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Okay. Now concerning. See that little connective there? If you read the book a few times, it might stick out. Skip to verse 25. How does it begin? Now concerning. Okay. Now concerning another topic. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning again. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts. See that connective? seems to move us from one topic to another topic in the book of 1 Corinthians. Look for those kinds of things. Now, every book is going to be unique. And every book is going to have a different way of organizing its material. But here's some examples of, of how an author will guide you through different at least sections, if not divisions, of a book. You have that little phrase in in the book of Judges. Now, the, the nation of Israel did evil, etc., etc. And then we have a whole section that deals with that evil and how God had to intervene and send a judge and or, or that evil actually resulted as in either captivity or persecution by a foreign nation. God sends a judge and delivers them. And then the cycle begins again. You have all these cycles in the book of Judges. And that kind of develops the structure of that book. Other books do different things. You might have grammatical indicators. This isn't as clear. You have to look closely at the grammar. But an example is First Peter. And you may not even observe this in your first reading of the English. But once you begin to exegete the text, then you'll see some of these things stick out. I use this as an example because I've exegeted the book and it stood out when I was studying it. If you read the first 12 verses of chapter 1, the grammar is such that these are these are more direct statements, uh, doctrinal statements, as opposed to exhortations. And then beginning in verse 13, therefore... In fact, that's a clue right there, that connective there. Therefore, and now he he gives us a series of exhortations that run through the rest of the book. Exhortation after exhortation after exhortation. And this is characteristic of a lot of epistolary literature. You see this in Paul, and you see this in 1 Peter, and you find it elsewhere as well in epistolary literature where you will have a major doctrinal section of a book or division of a book followed by a section of exhortations. It's a little more subtle, but if you're kind of gearing yourself to looking for some of these major changes, after a while you begin to to notice these things. And in fact, once you get into the detailed exegesis of these passages, after you pass the doctrinal section, you're going to find out that Peter uses what's called an aorist imperative very commonly throughout the rest of the book. In fact, there are, I think, I think there are like 25 what are called aorist imperatives in the Greek. That's the strongest form of an exhortation in the Greek 
language. There's a present imperative and there's the aorist imperative. The aorist tends to be the stronger of the two. Now again, if you don't know the Greek, you won't notice that. But even from the English, what you can notice is the fact that beginning in verse 13, chapter 1, through the rest of the book, exhortation after exhortation after exhortation. Now you have a few little doctrinal statements mixed in, but it's predominantly exhortation. So that would be a grammatical indication. And you're going to find that somewhat characteristic of Romans. Romans does that. The first 11 chapters of Romans are doctrinal. And then, how does chapter 12 begin? Therefore, present your bodies as a holy or living and holy sacrifice, etc. Beginning chapter 12, that's the practical section of the book of Romans. Uh, sometimes you'll see a change in literary form. You could divide Deuteronomy the first 31 chapters, prose predominantly, and then you have predominantly poetry in chapter 32 to the end of the book. Some of the prophetic books, you might have a historical section mixed in with uh, some of the prophetic sections, like in Isaiah. Or just a subject change, a change of subject. And you can see this in historical books as well. Book of Exodus, you probably can observe four major subject changes in the book of Exodus. You have a preparation period where Moses and the children of Israel are prepared in order to leave Egypt. Then chapters 5 through 18, God delivers them out of Egypt. And you have in the midst of that the Exodus. And then God begins to reveal his plan for them and the law. In chapters 19 through 31. And then you have a section where Israel responds to that. Chapters 32 through 40. Very distinct changes in subjects. So you see, get the idea here? You're looking for major features of a book. Don't get bogged down on the details. And in your outlining, we're still talking about outlining here, don't get bogged down with the details of the outline. Let me give you an idea of what you're looking for. Let's use the book of Genesis as an example. And you can do this in outline form, or I'm, I'm using kind of a chart form here so you can visually see it, but you can do the same thing with an outline. What you're going to do is you, your horizontal line here kind of represents the, the progress of the book. And then these are, this is the beginning and this is the end, obviously. And here I have a divider. I observed in my book study and then also in the detail study two divisions in the book of Genesis. So that's what you're looking for. Most books will not have more than four or five divisions and many of them will have just two divisions, two or three. So you're only going to have like a two or three point outline or you're free to chart it if you want to as well. The book of Genesis falls very nicely into two major parts, two divisions. I see chapters 1 through 11 are very distinct and somewhat different from chapters 12 through 50. And uh, you might come up with a title with it. In other words, this would be a Roman numeral 1. This would, if, if you're outlining it, this would be a Roman numeral 2 in an outline form. I'm just presenting it in chart form to help you visualize it. Chapters 1 through 12 is primeval history. 
or initial history, or origins history, or however you want to describe it. And then chapters 12 through 50 deal, rather than events, 1 through 11 seems to focus on events, chapters 12 through 50 seem to focus on individuals, patriarchs. So if this is primeval history, then 12 through 50 is patriarchal history. You see, we're not looking at the detail, just the broad strokes. Now, in your in your overview, if this is all you can come up with, just the, the two major divisions, that's good work. If you some, can observe some more, a little bit more, uh, still not detailed, but if you can notice that there are four major events in chapters 1 through 11, you have a creation, you have a fall, you have a flood, and you have a scattering, or the Tower of Babel. If you can observe those differences, then these would be individual sections. If you can observe that, that's even better. And you might notice in this patriarchal history, there are four major characters. So you have four major personages in chapters 12 through 50, four major events, chapters 1 through 11. That's why we have this sharp division between chapters 11 and 12. A shift in emphasis from events to individuals. Now, you have some uh, individuals here. You have Adam and you have Noah who are prominent. But uh, what is overwhelming is this flood of Noah and creation of the first man. So you have Adam and, and Eve and you have the fall. You still have Adam and Eve. And you have a scattering here. So if you can observe that, you've done excellent work. Anything beyond that is too detailed at this stage. Too detailed. So in uh, the assignment, when I ask you to come up with an outline of Ephesians, I'm not looking for lots of stuff. I'm looking for however many d- uh, divisions you find in it. And if you have some sections beyond that, fine. Okay? So it's not a detailed outline. Uh, the students always tend to kind of get too detailed here. And then you come up with kind of a a descriptive title that puts the whole book together. The whole book. You might think of a better one, but this seems the book of origins is what I came up with. We have the ultimate origin of all things, creation. We have the origin of sin and death from the fall. We have the origin and the beginnings of uh, judgment, major judgment in the flood, and a new beginning. And you have the beginning of languages and nations and peoples and groups and dispersions around the world. And then now you have the beginning of a particular family. You have the beginning, and the bulk of the book deals with this family that ultimately is uh, the nation of Israel, so you have the origin of the nation of Israel. So what God seems to be really interested in is where did this family come? But in order to understand where Israel came from, you have to understand where uh, Abraham came from. He came out of this mass of humanity, these nations, that have their beginnings from a major judgment of the flood. So this is the background to where Israel came from and answers a lot of questions on origins. So that's why I call it the Book of Origins. So come up with an initial summary of 
the whole book, and if you can break it down in a little phrase, that is even better. So in a book study, you do that through reading, and then you attempt to outline in this broad way, a broad outline, simple outline, looking just the visions, you're doing a flyover of the book, just like you might do a flyover over the city of Albuquerque. Secondly, you come up with a main idea. In other words, what is the, a summary of the whole book? What is this whole book about? Try to summarize the content of the whole book in one sentence at most. The main idea, the big idea, summary of the whole book. What captures the entire book? And if you can narrow it down to a phrase, that would even be better. Now keep in mind, this is preliminary. After you've exegeted the whole book, you may revise some of your initial conclusions here. But what you want, at least to begin with, is a very good development of the context of that book. That's what you're trying to get, is the context of that book. So look for the main idea in no more than a sentence or a phrase. A main idea binds all the other subjects together. Like in science, you come up with a hypothesis. In a book study, you're coming up with a main idea of the whole book. What summarizes the whole book? What brings all of the details of the book together? In science, what explains the data that I've been observing? In a book study, what brings all of the details of the text together? Now, you're talking about the broad strokes. Because if you have the broad strokes, then the smaller detail after that will be in its proper context. Or at least you'll have a, a good idea of what it is. It attempts to account for all the parts. Now, as you work through a book, and if you exegete the whole book, then ultimately you will account for all the parts. But at least a, account for as many of the parts as you can in coming up with a main idea. If a portion of the book is not somehow captured within that statement of the main idea, then it's probably not a good main idea of the whole book. And again, you're looking for what God is trying to communicate through that book. What was God trying to communicate through the book of Exodus, or the book of Genesis, or the book of uh, Philemon, or whatever book you're looking at? Look for clues in the book itself. Clues in the book itself. Sometimes a writer might even give you a summary statement of a book. Perhaps an example of that, uh, turn to the end of the book of John. This might be John's main idea of the book. Look at John chapter 20. Do one of you want to read uh, verse 30 and 31? Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay, do you notice that that's one sentence? Notice he talks about other signs. And if you read through the book, you find a major feature of this book are these, what he calls signs or miracles. He describes them using the word signs. Signs because they point to something. What do they point to? Well, he selects, he's telling you, I'm selecting certain signs. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, he's saying, all of the signs that I presented in this book, seven major signs, 
I have presented to you for this purpose that you may see that Jesus is the Christ and in doing that, that you may have, in other words, believing in, in that believing that you may have life in his name. That may be a good summary of the whole book. That may be the main idea. So look for those kinds of clues in the book itself. The author might give you the main idea uh, that he's trying to communicate. That might be a good summary of the book of John. So you are reading, you are outlining, you are looking for the big picture, the main idea. What is the purpose of the book? Again, that John passage, I think John tells you the purpose of his book. That you may believe in Jesus Christ. It's evangelistic in large measure. And again, this is a preliminary purpose of the book. All of this you may refine. All of this you may revise. Hopefully you do good enough work that you don't have to totally abandon it and totally start over. But as you develop the skill of a book study, you'll you'll come pretty close. And as you finish your exegesis of the book, you can refine it. And like I said, sometimes the author will give you the purpose as well. Not only a summary statement, but a purpose. And simply make other observations on that photograph of the city of Albuquerque from over 30,000 feet, an airplane view. We saw that the, the city is divided by an interstate system and a major river. Okay, that, But we also observed uh, some other details. We observed that there was a major airport to the south. We also made uh, observed some uh, rectangular at least in that northeast portion of it, some rectangular main arterials. Those might be additional observations that we made. Uh, we also observe perhaps the edge of the city on the east side. You might make, you know, what's the edge? Is there something that distinguishes the edge on the west side or on the south or on the north that you can observe? Different observations. What's the literary form would uh, fit into this category here? What's the literary form of the book? What is the type of literature? Just anything that sticks out. Anything that's major that sticks out. Maybe a recurring theme that is not the main idea. Or a large section is devoted to this particular theme. Those are your main observations. Again, not detail. What is the overall atmosphere that you feel in this book? Does it change? When I say atmosphere, an example of that would be Lamentations. What's the atmosphere in the book of Lamentations? You've probably read it and probably know enough about it that you can give me the atmosphere of Lamentations. Any suggestions? Sorrow. Sorrow. Grief. Grief and sorrow. Uh, heaviness. Absolutely. Now, very different in some Psalms that some of them great joy or excitement or whatever. Look for those kinds of things in a book as well. At the end of your your own personal observations, your own study, your own overview, you want to confirm the work that you have done. This is the stage where you might consult reference works. But notice... We do this after you have done your own reading, your own outlining, your own attempt at a main idea. 
your own development of why did the author write this book? What's the purpose of this book? After you've made your own additional observations. And once you have done that, then you can consult. uh, There are several books that you can consult. You can consult your own. If you have a good study Bible, it'll have an introduction and you can read in it. And it usually might give you uh, probably a, a relatively good outline of the book. Check that outline with yours. At least uh, the general features of what you came up with. See if it makes a statement concerning the main idea of the book. Sometimes it might say that, or it might tell you what the main emphasis or the main content of the book is. It might give you the purpose of the book. So you can start there. You can also go to a commentary and an introduction to a commentary on that book. It might give you some uh, some overview material. And there are some surveys of the Old Testament, surveys of the New Testament that are nothing more than one author's results of his book study, along with additional information. Or introductions to the Old Testament or introductions to the New Testament will sometimes give you an overview of a book. So that's stage one. That deals primarily with content. That deals primarily with the context textual context of the book. The second major part of a book study is looking up historical background. And a book like Jensen's Surveys will give you all of that information. Now, most of this you can't get on your own. You can get some of it. So we'll talk about the part that you can get and then the part that you need to go to other resources to get. So you're going to look at historical background. So this overview, the first stage, gives you overall context that's textual. In other words, how passages fit together. How ideas are worked throughout the book. Or how events flow to give you the story of that narrative. Those sort of things. The second stage, the historical background, gives you a historical context. How does this book fit in to the historical record of New Testament, or if you're looking at an Old Testament book, where does it fit into the history of the Old Testament? So that's what you want to do to do a complete book study. Now this portion, like I said, you'll need resources outside yourself. Everything before you could have done on your own. You could do on your own. And you're looking for things like, uh, who is the author of this book? Now, we already talked a little bit about this when we talked about that historical principle. Now we're applying it. So we're applying the historical principle now. Who is the author? What was his background? Where was he at when he wrote? What were the circumstances under which he was writing? Why did he write? Those kinds of things. Secondly, again, who is the audience? Who is he writing to? That's very important. In fact, uh, when I was moving from one place to uh, where I'm at right now, I was going through bunches of stuff, boxes and that sort of thing, and sorting and throwing things away. I came across a box, and it had some letters in it. This is real old. I think this, I should have thrown this out 32 years ago when I moved into the place that I moved from. 
But anyway, there was there were some letters in there, and I had not seen them in at least 30 years. I can't remember, maybe more than that. And just out of curiosity, I opened one up and just started reading it. And for the life of me, I could not figure out what this person sent to me, a girlfriend, way back. I just couldn't figure it out until I began. To, I had to think, let's see, what, what was going on during that time? This was a letter in response to a letter I had written. This was back before email, obviously, where you actually put a stamp on a letter. Any of you are familiar with that? <laughs> That's ancient history. But anyway, uh, you know, the envelope even had the stamp, probably 15 cents or something. <laughs> yeah, that old. <laughs> well, it was last century. <laughs> Anyway, I, I just I couldn't figure out what we were discussing because she was responding to something that I had said, and I just couldn't figure it out until I had to think through, well, what was going on? What I was doing is I was reconstructing the historical background. In other words, the situation in which we were in, and I was the audience of this letter, and I, and she was the audience of the letter that I'd sent, and I still couldn't figure it out until I reconstructed. Oh, oh okay, I remember this is what was going on. This is what you're doing. So it's important. What's the occasion? What was going on with the author and the audience? What was their situation? That'll help you to understand why the author wrote. That'll help you understand the purpose. So these are all little notes, historical notes. Geography sometimes comes into play. In other words, where is Athens if you're studying, say, Acts chapter 17 or whatever? Where is Philippi and what's what's that city all about? Uh, you'll do a little of that when you talk about the audience, but where is it located? And does that have any significance? And another thing, any individuals that might be noted in the passage, some of them you may not have, some of them may be very obscure. For example, in Philippians, again, there's two women that are noted, but they're, they're even named, but we don't know anything other than what uh, Paul mentions in the book of Philippians. But there's others. Timothy sometimes is mentioned in the letters of Paul, and there's a lot about Timothy. So that might help you to understand some passages in the book itself. So these are the kinds of things, and obviously the priority is the author, the audience, and the occasion. The occasion of the letter. Why? the circumstances that uh, brought about the letter. So that's the background. The sources, a lot of the references you can find in the book itself. In fact, all of the letters of Paul, Paul identifies himself as the author. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus, called according to his purposes, etc., or however he addresses, he'll identify himself. Sometimes he'll mention himself again later on. Sometimes he'll refer to the first in, a, in the first person to something that he was involved in. So references in the book, and these are your priority pieces of data that tell you something about author, audience, occasion, etc. So look for bits and pieces of information in the book itself. Secondly, you can look for references in Scripture elsewhere other than the book itself. For the New Testament, the book of Acts is a great source of information for things that go on in the letters. The book of Acts is dependent on the four Gospels. 
for some information. So the four Gospels and the book of Acts may be useful in understanding other books of the New Testament. Books like the book of Revelation are dependent on some of the prophetic books of the Old Testament, so you have to kind of dig into the Old Testament. That's true of all of the books of the New Testament. Some reference to the Old Testament oftentimes is in New Testament books. So references outside of the book that you're studying. Another tool that is helpful in searching the scriptures is a just a concordance. Just a concordance. You're looking at Philippians. Look up Philippi in a concordance, and it might give you some background information about Philippi in the Bible itself. In other words, other references to Philippi. There probably are from references in the book of Acts and maybe elsewhere. Probably not too many other places. But references elsewhere, a concordance will help you do that. Thirdly, uh, there's a variety of other sources, and here's those references that I mentioned earlier. Surveys of the New Testament or Old Testament are designed specifically to give you all this background information. So you can just go to them and you'll get probably all the information that you need. But if you want to check them out, you can do the first two, references in the book itself, references in Scripture, or if you want to do your own independent study and then check yourself, by going to these surveys, then that's a good practice to do. So there's there's surveys of the New Testament, survey of the Old Testament, commentaries. There is a use for commentaries. Most Christians probably don't use them properly. We're going to talk about commentaries and their place and their use. They're very useful. And they're useful especially in developing this historical background. And... Virtually every commentary will have an introduction that gives you all this same information. Bible dictionaries for particular people, places, things, and or if you have access to a Bible encyclopedia, does the same thing except they're expanded. Obviously, longer articles and probably more articles, more detailed, and probably more scholarly and, and so, Bible dictionaries and or encyclopedias. And any historical works. There's some, his, there's some works that are devoted to particular historical issues of both Old Testament and New Testament. This would include works on archaeology, those sort of resources. So, these are your sources for developing the historical background of any individual book. So this is an extremely valuable exercise once you're getting into the exegetical process. And it's important because you want a good context, both textual and historical, to be able to understand the details in the book. So if you have a historical context and you have a context of of the, the passages themselves in terms of the text, then... Uh, then it's going to help you to put the individual passages in that context. So that's a book study. Any questions on on that? It's not complicated. In fact, it's kind of a fun exercise to start practicing, and I'd encourage you to start doing this with every book in the Bible, just for your own personal, personal book benefit and growth. Actually, several years ago, when I was involved in teaching at another church, we went through the whole Bible that way. We, we did a New Testament 
we call it New Testament survey, and basically I went over this material with the whole church and encouraged them week after week to basically do this portion, in other words, these steps, and then the following Sunday what I would do is give the results of my work, that way they could compare theirs as well. It took a few years, but we went through the whole Bible, went through every book of the Bible. And it was probably one of the most valuable things that we we did there. The next thing, dealing with the text. At this stage, when you're only dealing with the English text, you're very, very limited. I've mentioned that before, but I want to mention it here just so that you're aware. In a good study Bible, they will have little footnotes in there. Look for those little footnotes that refer to the text. And it'll refer to those textual issues that we talked about when we were talking about the linguistic principle. And I'll give you another shot at this as well. We'll talk a little bit more about this later. But you won't be able to do a whole lot. There's just a few things. If, in fact, you do have an issue in a passage, if it's major, for example, you're studying the book of Mark and you find out that half of chapter 16 is a major textual issue. In fact, it's probably the, the biggest textual issue in all the New Testament. Because many of the manuscripts omit over half of uh, Mark chapter 16. And you might want to probe and wonder, well, what's going on? Well, in a case like that, where you have a major thing, even in the English text, it's, it's kind of a good idea to think through what's going on there and the implications of if, in fact... This is not authentic, and it's in my Bible. How does that affect whatever's going on in Mark chapter 16? Well, you want to identify, and obviously the footnotes will identify for you the possible variants. In other words, what's in question? Sometimes it's only a word. Sometimes it might be a whole sentence or a phrase. And sometimes, like it's like I said, it can be a couple of paragraphs. In fact, the Mark example, a few paragraphs there, a couple of them, I can't remember how many. So those entire paragraphs would be considered variants. In other words, some manuscripts have it, some manuscripts don't, that sort of thing. List them. In other words, okay, what what are these variants? In other words, how does this passage read in one manuscript? How does it read in other manuscripts? List them. And like I said, you're you're dependent on the study Bible. They'll, they'll be basically do this, but it's a good practice. Just kind of follow what they're they're writing there, and give your initial assessment. Do you agree with the translation you have? And you might even go to a different translation. How did this? How did the NIV treat this passage? And again, this is an initial assessment at the best that you can do at this level. And the main thing is to identify problems one way or the other, or vice versa. Because sometimes it comes into play. Not very often, once in a while. And at this stage, this is about all you can do. You can't do full-blown textual criticism. In fact, most Greek students, after they've taken all their Greek, still can't do textual criticism. It's very technical. It's a difficult area. But again, that'll be taught in another course. So that's dealing with book study, that's dealing with the text. Thirdly, we're still doing preliminary exegesis. You want to make some more initial observations, but now your initial observations have to do with a paragraph 
or if you're looking at a sentence or a portion of scripture, what are some initial observations in that more isolated passage? You've already done your book study. These are initial observations that pertain to a particular passage. And basically, from here on out, we'll be treating particularly paragraph by paragraph or sentence by sentence from here on out. The preliminary exercise deals with kind of the broader issues. Now we're kind of looking, we're, we're going to focus and narrow our study down to small portions of Scripture. So you might consider reading the passage in different translations. And basically, at this stage, the Greek students, we would ask them to translate the passage. But at this stage, using only the English, you might, if you're studying in the New American Standard, how does the NIV read? Or how does even a paraphrase read? Wouldn't hurt to even read a paraphrase. Secondly, what is the context? Remember, that's one of the most important principles. What's the context of this particular paragraph? I have the context of the whole book, but now I'm looking more narrowly, more specifically, what's the context of this paragraph that I'm dealing with? What comes before? What comes after? What did we call that? Context, but more specifically? (laughs) Immediate context. The immediate context. Now, for the purpose of this course, you probably will select a passage in the book of Ephesians that is not that first paragraph. It may be even in chapter 6. But if it's in chapter 5 or 6 or whatever, try to look at the passages around that particular passage that you're looking at. So you're looking at the specific context of that paragraph and the immediate context Uh, the paragraph surrounding that particular paragraph. Does that make sense? Let me kind of schematically show you, because students get tripped up on this on the assignment part. Here's the page in your Bible. might have a column. You have a paragraph. You have a paragraph here. Let's do it this way. You have a paragraph here. Another paragraph here. Another paragraph here, and maybe you have a long paragraph here, and the start of a paragraph, and then the next goes on to the next page. This is the passage that you're looking at. You want to consider the context of this paragraph itself. In other words, what's going on within that paragraph? That's the specific context. The immediate context is at least what's in this paragraph, and maybe this paragraph, at least what's in this paragraph and perhaps what's in this paragraph. That's your immediate context. All right? So initially, that's what you want to do. You want to see where does this paragraph fall in here. And from your book study, you have a broad outline. Where does it fit in that broad outline? Does that make sense? So that's what we're talking about. Initial context. Now, all of this is initial. Thirdly, it's good to kind of be aware of the genre that you're dealing with. Are you studying a passage in the Old Testament that's narrative? Are you studying the book of Genesis? Are you studying the book of Exodus? Or are you studying uh, one of the Gospels in the New Testament? What's the genre? 
And most of the exercises you'll be working with, obviously, is out of the book of Ephesians, so you'll be dealing with epistolary literature. Fourthly, do any other observations. Just like we asked you to do observations on the whole book, now you're doing observations just on that portion of Scripture that you're going to focus in on. And again, you're you're looking at it a little bit more broadly. You're not looking at the detail of the paragraph. You're try, trying to look at the big picture of that paragraph. So you might even observe, for example, what's the main idea of this paragraph? A paragraph, by definition, is what? Well, it's a topic. An idea. One idea. Yeah, one central idea controls everything in that paragraph, by definition. In other words, what is that idea that the author is trying to communicate, that this whole paragraph is trying to convey? Make sense? So you're looking for the big idea of the paragraph. You looked at the big idea of the book. Now you're looking at the big idea of this paragraph, this particular passage. You're dealing with just a sentence. A sentence is one thought in a paragraph that contributes to that main idea of the paragraph. But sometimes you can study a sentence and you want to come up with, well, what is that thought? What is the main idea of that sentence? So those are what kind of observations that you're making. And other characteristics or things that stand out in that paragraph, you might note those as well. Some other things to consider in the in observations. Are there any issues that arise here? Any problems? Is there something that I'm going to have to study further to resolve a major issue here. It may be theological, it may be grammatical. In other words, maybe this sentence just doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to have to do some grammatical work here to understand this sentence. Whatever the issue may be. It could be theological, it could be grammatical, it could be with a word. It could be a doctrinal issue, it could be a theological issue, it could be an apologetic issue, it could be a textual issue. Whatever issues that you may observe... And you may not even observe it until you get further into it, but if you can observe it initially, then it'll help you to isolate it. And then you know that you have to do some work on it. Maybe there's a word here. I, I, you know, this word I don't have a clue, so I may have to do some further study on this particular word. So those are some of the main things. You're kind of doing your flyover, you're doing your overview, but now you're doing it over with a paragraph. This is before you get into the details of it. Well, there'll be... Many things that we'll do when we get into a detailed study of it. We're just doing the preliminary exegesis. That's preliminary exegesis.